Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman. And to wrap up 2016, good God 2016, I have decided to follow the trend and bring you a little clip show. I am not calling this a best of because honestly, I could make up a whole different show with clips from completely different episodes than the ones I'm going to feature in this. And it would also be equally amazing. We're lucky here at Unscrewed to have an embarrassment of riches to choose from. And so choose I did. I want to get things started with a clip from our very first show, which was called For a Good Time and featured my friend, the fantastic writer and trans activist and all around brilliant person, S. Bear Bergman, talking about the hookup culture conversation. And in this clip I'm going to play for you, I asked him how he would reframe the whole question. And while he was being smart, I got to make docking noises. First, you have to get clear about what you actually individually want. Not what you think you're supposed to want, not what your friends want, not what you imagine wanting in a different world. But when you are, when you're only thinking about yourself and what you want and not what would be good for anyone else, blah, 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 whatever, what seems like it would be satisfactory to you? What seems fun? What seems connected what seems like it will advance your personal goals what matches your politics who are the people that you want to be doing that with you know my my little um you know when i put ads on on hookup sites or whatever i'm not really selecting for you must be between five feet nine and five feet eleven mm-hmm. and have you know blonde body hair but not too much um, I'm really selecting for I want I want cheerful, enthusiastic, feminist, sex positive sex partners who will be a good time not only in how they touch me, but also in how they feel to be around. Yes. And I have a whole other thing about how the thing that we see in the movies that I refer to as the magnetic noses moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. How that thing not only 
erases um, the like very important need for people to have a conversation about what they're about to do. But also it, it you know, it, it takes the place of it, right? There's this heterosexual sex script where you just, you start with the kissing and then you go to the fondling and then you go to the fondling people in their pants. And then you go to the, you know, docking the sticky outy business with the, <laughs> with the place where it fits meep, or one of them meep, and then you, right is that the docking noise <laughs> yes that's my docking noise yes and then you know unfortunately people are mostly prepared to believe that it's over when the person with the sticky outy business is no longer able to stick it in and it's the most heterosexist and most cis sexist situation you could possibly imagine it just assumes that everybody wants to do that and nobody wants to do anything else and that's just the natural conclusion of the activity and that everybody's genitals are going to be what you see in hollywood and yada yada and so people just do it because they can't figure out how to interrupt it In March, I had on the brilliant Soraya Shamali to talk about her coverage of the way female politicians and first ladies were being sexualized. We, of course, had no idea what was still to come in the campaign season, but we already had a feeling for where it was going. You know what all the sort of pornification of Hillary Clinton makes me think about is the ruckus when she was a senator when she wore something on the floor of the Senate that you could see like the very, very, very top, if you squinted, of her cleavage and people fell out. So we only sanction portraying female politicians sexually when it's non-consensual. The idea that in any way she might consensually do something that revealed her body, which again has echoes of Michelle Obama, although again, Michelle Obama's a first lady and black and there are different dynamics there too but there's also a whiff of the whole scandal about michelle obama's arms which was like god forbid she should be having some kind of personal expression around her body well and also that it's maybe not sexualizing every part of a woman's body like we don't uh, i don't think most of the time get up thinking how am i going to sexualize myself today i'd like to wear some comfortable clothes first and foremost right right but it's also like, you know, maybe I want to look cute. Maybe I think this looks flattering on me. Maybe I like the way I look in this. There's no room for that personal self-expression, especially if it has even a tinge of sexuality to it, even a whiff of sexuality to it. And yet you found this rampant sexualization via non-consensual pornography. I just think it it tells such a clear story. And by the way, that's exactly what the objection is to Melania Trump's naked pictures, is that she voluntarily posed for them. I guarantee you that there will be non-consensual porn about Melania Trump, that those same guys who are saying that she's unfit to be first lady will enjoy. It's that she voluntarily showed her body that they're shaming her for. It really is the fetishization of non-consent. Right. And I think that that idea of manipulating women and their images in that way is so central to the toxic masculinity that we talk about all the time, right? Just this idea that inherent in masculinity is not only dominance of women, but also this control even of their images and their and representation. And I mean, this is something you and I have talked about too. I'm really not convinced that in a patriarchal society like this, in a really toxic to women 
media environment like this that women can ever really claim their own nakedness and nudity in non-sexualized ways, even though I think it's important that we keep trying to. It's so easy to get turned around. We can have control over the images we decide to put in the world, although we don't have control of the image, the images other people decide to put in the world of us. But we, have, we, we may decide this is the image I want to put into the world, but we don't control the context in which it's received. And that matters. We have to not pretend that that doesn't matter. Honestly, there's already, Melania Trump has already been pornified way beyond the point of her consent. You know, it's a real commentary on how people think they can hurt these male candidates. It's really hurting their honor, right? It's like, not only is it their honor, but it's the fact that they can't control their women. Like, get your woman under control. Whether she consensually agreed to this or is non-consensually being harassed and abused, in either case, you're not in control, dude. That's a degradation of your manliness. One of my favorite interviews this year was with Rebecca Traster on her new book, All the Single Ladies, which is about the sociopolitical and historical meaning of single women in America. When I was editing the show for the first time, I was really worried that you all would think it was too sort of nerdy and wonky. Instead, you made this one of our most listened to shows of the year and made me love you as an audience even more. So for you, my wonky audience, here is Rebecca with a brief history of how women of color have been the unsung trailblazers of women's singlehood and sexual liberation in the second half of the 20th century and have got nothing but erasure and oppression for their trouble. Even as uh, marginalized, less affluent women and women of color pioneer a lot of these, uh, a lot of new behaviors, they do so in response to economic necessity. And as, as you said, people aren't paying attention to them as sort of pioneers of behavior that's liberating, but they are paying attention to them often as victims or malevolent forces. So when black women began to marry less often, black women and men, it was the mid 20th century. After emancipation, black marriage rates had been much higher than white marriage rates. In the middle of the 20th century, in the same years that white middle-class women were being sort of pushed back into early hetero-married suburban models, this the sort of mid-50s, leave it to beaver, Norman Rockwell era of American history that was built in and in large part funded by the government. Basically, the resources that were creating the ability of this white middle class to sort of re-entomb middle class white women in a patriarchal family structure were simultaneously cutting off black families from the kinds of resources that made traditional hetero early married you know, nuclear family models possible. And what you get two years after The Feminine Mystique, which is the Betty, Betty Friedan 1963 sort of explosive breakout of those white middle class suburbs, two years later you get the Moynihan Report, which diagnoses single black women as the sort of pathological center of systemic black poverty. And so there they are, they're being paid attention to, but as both victims and the problem. And then you see them further vilified through uh, the Reagan years and the, the welfare queen, which of course gets pushed through welfare reform in the 1990s. And then as the behavior of not marrying, pioneered by many of those women of color in the mid-20th century, begins to be mimicked by increasingly affluent women. Eventually we get to the point where it's Sex and the City ladies and, you know, with $600 shoes and suddenly it's discernible as liberation. 
In May, in response to a listener question about how to build a meaningful solo sex life, I had the profound honor of interviewing Dr. Joycelyn Elders, the former Surgeon General of the United States and an absolute pioneer of destigmatizing sexuality in service of public health. During the lightning round, she told me a little story about her own sex education that made her extraordinary career seem even more impressive. The story is also maybe a little hilarious. You have to realize I grew up in the country and I didn't really know better. And there, I, I was the oldest of eight children, so I didn't have any older sisters to, or brothers to give me any advice. But up that if you swallowed a watermelon seed, that would make you pregnant. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were really careful with watermelon. I, you're right. I, I was very careful. We, you know, we had great big watermelon patch, but I always make sure I got out of all the seeds. <laughs> When I had Dr. Brittany Cooper on a few episodes later to talk about sex and the black church, I asked her to respond to something that Dr. Elders had said about educating ministers. What I got was the sexiest Bible lesson I've ever received. So I recently had Dr. Joycelyn Elders on the show and she, one of the things she said, uh, she brought up a couple of times the idea that ministers just really need education that they don't they don't know any better right like they're just preaching what they were raised with yeah do you think that's true do you think that they would welcome that education I do think they need it I don't think that by and large they would welcome it I think that many black ministers are resistant because they feel like the bible is a rule book we already know what the rules are, so they tell us. And so everybody's just supposed to follow those rules. And basically, if you follow the rules and you don't have sex outside of marriage, then you don't get AIDS. You don't have any babies that you're not trying to have or any abortions, you know, that that might become necessary. Like, they think that that is the salve for all problems. It's just completely unrealistic because, of course, for sexual people, you know, all people are not sexual, right? But like for those of us who actually are sexual, it's clearly ridiculous and you can only regulate people in that way for so long and then eventually folk are going to have some sex. Or it's going to, as we talked about, it's going to drive them into terrible dysfunctional marriages, (laughs) That's right. right. It's going to drive them into terrible dysfunctional marriage or terrible dysfunctional emotional problems. Like one of the things that is most sad to me is when I am doing work in churches or, you know, hanging out with homegirls in churches who, I, I mean, I have homegirls in the church who literally have not been touched in a decade in a couple of decades like it puts all this pressure on dating right because if you think that you can only have sex during marriage then every dude that you date it has to become a marriage right and so that you can get so i mean it's you know and any dude with sense is gonna run from that because that's too much pressure right there are these terrible books like there was some book that they were doing at this church I used to go to where it has like charts and graphs about how much time you're, you know, you should spend alone and when it's okay to touch the person on the knee and when it's okay to share a kiss on the cheek. And I knew grown women who were passing this book around like it was a good idea. And I was like, what? You're going to map your sexuality on a chart? How does that work? Well, and the assumption better there also is that everybody's the same. That's right. But that is the assumption, right? The assumption is that everybody is straight, that everybody wants to be married, and that everybody's sexual desires conform to this very limited idea that evangelical people read in the Bible. So I think that ministers are resistant. And so one of the things that I've tried to do in the bit of work that I've done on this is to move women 
who are not ministers, but who are just members of churches. And so like one of the things I like to do is in black Christian circles, sisters will say to each other, you know, you want to be holy and you want to do the right thing because you want to find your Boaz. And Boaz is this Old Testament character in the Bible who basically takes in a poor girl named Ruth who is like, gleaning the leftover cotton from his fields. So Boaz has a lot of money and he's very well respected. And so Ruth and her former mother-in-law hatched this plot to get Boaz to marry Ruth. And the way that the story reads in the Bible is that, that Boaz recognizes Ruth and he makes sure that there's always enough cotton left over for her when she goes behind everyone to pick the leftovers. But one night, Ruth goes into Boaz's tent and the way that the language reads, it just says, and she sits at his feet all night. And when he wakes up in the morning, he has to marry her. And you're taught to believe that this is because there's some odd ancient Middle Eastern custom in which if a man falls asleep and a woman is sitting in his tent, when he wakes up, he has to marry her. <laughs> like this is So this is how people tell this story, right? They literally tell the story as, you know, you want to find your Boaz, your good upstanding man with money who will marry you. And if you're good and you sit at his feet long enough, he'll marry you. That's right. And her mother-in-law was like, you know, look pretty, wait, you know, wait till he gets drunk and passes out in the tent and then go into the tent and sit at his feet. But girl, that's not what the story means. Feet are a euphemism in this time frame for genitals. Really? Yes. So basically, it means that she gave him the blowjob of his life. And he was like, I'm marrying her. (laughs) That's right. And so... (laughs) So this is the kind of stuff that I'll go, you know, when I'm doing this kind of work with women in the church and say, is I'll just point them to a story and look and say to them, since you have to find evidence of this in your Bible, right? Since you don't believe that you can think about this just in terms of how some of us who are not totally using the Bible to live our lives in that way, think about it. Like, look at this story. This story goes against all the things you've been taught about how to build intimate relationships that you want. The dude doesn't approach her. She approaches him. She is not chased. She rolls up in his tent, which is interesting in terms of consent and all that in the modern you know, context. Sure. But she rolls up in his tent and basically puts it on him. And then he wakes up and says, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> so when people tell you to go get your Boaz, ask yourself what they really telling you to do. right? And, it all, and look, every time I do this, it makes ladies so mad. It makes church ladies so mad. It makes me so happy. 
got sexed up this year. When writer Sadie Doyle joined me to talk about her book Trainwreck, we got to talking about Mary Wollstonecraft, author of Vindication of the Rights of Women, possibly the first book on feminism in the English language. It's very hard to see her as shocking or interesting because she's like, and another thing, what if we let ladies be doctors? You know, like, what if women could vote? We've adopted all of these ideas now. So she's not someone who grabs a lot of attention in your woman's studies class. But she was, for her day, kind of shockingly radical. And she was specifically sexually radical. She uh, did not believe in marriage. She kind of said nice things about it in her feminist texts so that people would take her seriously. But she had two relationships before she was married. One was kind of like a brief, awful situation where she fell for a guy while he was getting married. And she showed up at his house and asked his wife for permission to move in. Like, she just thought, well, maybe he could date both of us. That did not turn out well for her. (laughs) (laughs) So then later she had one that I I hesitate to say that it went better, but she did move in with a man named Gilbert Imlay. She had gone to France to cover the French Revolution because that was an exciting place to be if you were a radical and if you believed in democracy. And it was the idea that maybe, again, this is one of those like, what if women could vote things, but maybe you could have a relationship that was as serious or more serious than marriage without necessarily having that subject to the state or to the church. It went well. She had a daughter and then it abruptly went less well because he abandoned her. She took a dark turn. You know, she'd had trauma in her life. Her father had been violently abusive toward her mother. She had always had sort of a strain of melancholy running through her life. But with this and with the stress of raising a newborn in a war zone, it took over. And her letters from this period are very dark and they're very scary. And she did try to kill herself twice. This is not something that even a lot of her friends knew about. She was a really well-respected thinker in her day in a way that would shock us. You know, if you think about an, an 18th century feminist, you expect her to be met with total derision, but she wasn't, you know, like, John and Abigail Adams read her work. Aaron Burr thought she was a hero. He had a portrait of her and tried to educate his daughters in line with her theories. She did recover. She fell in love with yet another man. um, And this man she actually did marry. She was very optimistic in love. I know. (laughs) William Godwin had been an old friend of hers. They got married when she became pregnant again and she died in childbirth. They'd only been married for about six months. But when she died, William Godwin, bless his heart, because no one else will, decided that the world really needed to know who this woman was and how wonderful she was. And so he published every letter she'd ever written that he could get his hands on. And that included letters about having sex with a man before marriage. And that included her suicide notes. He published a biography so that we could put all of this in context. And he told everyone that she had an illegitimate child and that she had lived with a man before marriage. If you can imagine the kind of gift this was to the right-wing press. Well, I think what's so fascinating to me in reading that story in your book was it literally set back feminist progress. It caused all kinds of people to distance themselves from her ideas because they were like, well, this is the kind of woman who espouses these ideas. These ideas are clearly bankrupt. 
obviously there were right-wing publications calling her a prostitute or uh, I think usurping bitch was one of the real zingers. But even magazines she'd worked for had to sort of politely say, well, it, it may be true that her experience is the best proof against her theories. Women, feminist women, had to distance themselves from her. Harriet Martineau, who was, you know, one of the very few to keep on slogging ahead, had to do it at the expense of telling people, look, we're not all like Mary Wollstonecraft. This is not a movement for unhappy women. And in fact, I think if you're just unhappy in your relationships, you should stay out of feminism. It's not for you. Well, and I think that tracks in a modern sense as well. I mean, women are almost always participating in the creation and shaming of train wreck narratives. Yeah. It's a game we play of distancing ourselves from the women who have been caught out doing femininity wrong in order to feel like we're doing it right. There's so much pressure on all of us. And one of the easiest ways to to affirm that you care about what people think about you, you care about being the right kind of woman, you care about not being terrible is to find a woman who actually is breaking the rules and say, well, look over there. You know, it's like we're we're encouraging men to grade us on a curve, you know? Yes. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Amy Winehouse either. So, you know. In October, I had the pleasure of talking about the importance of women telling our own stories with actress Stephanie Beatrice, best known for her role as Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and her bestie and partner in crime, Courtney Kosak, who's a writer for Amazon's Danger and Eggs. The two were on to promote their rad new podcast about tech and dating and everything else called Reality Bites, which you should definitely be listening to. But I also got the chance to ask about In the Light of the Moon, the film about rape and its aftermath that Steph will be starring in next year. The first first voice you'll hear in this clip is Courtney. I've seen a cut of it and it's going to be like gorgeous. And I think what's awesome about it is that like, we don't see a lot of these stories, especially told from a woman's point of view. And that was ushered through the whole process by a woman and like just really humanizes the whole experience. Mm -hmm. It was really important to Jessica to have a female DP on the show, director of photography, Mm. because She had done a lot of research and watched a lot of rape scenes in movies. And there was often a very sexualized element to Mm -hmm. those rape scenes. Yes. This story is told from the female perspective. So, like, why wouldn't you just explore the possibility of having a female eye also be the eye that's watching the movie as well? I thought that was super smart of Jessica. The scene is super hard to watch because it is just the gritty, like dark reality of it. real real yeah it must have been pretty hard to shoot yeah yeah you know it was easier honestly because it was a heavily female crew I felt very safe I didn't feel in any way shape or form taken advantage of and the actor that was playing the rapist was also like super feminist and a really nice guy and we, we had very open discussions about like what I was comfortable with what he was comfortable with it's interesting talking about this stuff because, like, I'm just playing pretend. I'm not actually living that thing. Sure. So, like, for me to sort of say, oh, it was a really hard day or whatever, is like, you know, shut up. Like, <laughs> you're fine. You're fucking fine. All right. Like, someone got you That's a so soda weird. in the middle of the <laughs> like, Psychologically, though. It's yeah. Hard. Like, if you have a big imagination, which most actors do, and I've been cultivating my imagination since I was a child, you can get really deep into stories and. Yeah, then you like 
go home that night and you think about it and then you keep crying in the shower and you're not really sure why. And in that way, it was tough. But like I said, it was, I was very supported by everyone working on that film from the director, writer, to the producers, to our PAs. The hardest thing about working on that film was all of the PAs and the crew people that would come up to me later and say, I'm so glad you're doing this movie. I was raped. And there were many. Mm -hmm. And that goes to show me that like, I'm walking around in my everyday life dealing with women who are keeping this to themselves and like live through this thing and don't really want to identify as a rape survivor or a victim. Mm -hmm. They want to be themselves in in the world and they don't want other people to just see that and so they it's decided kind of what to, we talked about on the best-selling episode yeah then after something like that happens it can sort of like brand you or take over your identity but you do get to choose who you tell like you do get to choose how vocal you want to be about it and maybe that can bring about change yeah mad process And of course, I could only leave one clip for last. It's the post-election moment when historian and all-around badass Hannah Blank made me believe again in the radical possibilities of pleasure as a form of resistance and gave me my new motto in the process. The other thing, and this is sort of more directly about pleasure, that this whole shit show of an election outcome has done is that it has brought people together. And there's been a lot of people just sort of spontaneously reaching out and creating community and going, I don't even know how to create community, but I know that we as a collective need to be doing something. So let's start having those conversations and bringing people together and starting to have those conversations, even when they're difficult conversations, I think there's a lot of pleasure in that because there's a lot of pleasure in human connection. We are literally built as human beings to reach out to other people when we feel threatened. And that is our strength. Don't forget that all of these things that, you know, all, especially the social horrors that are sort of being bandied about by um, folks on the right these days, they're all about isolating people. They're all about keeping people from one another. You know, like, let's put all of these people over here on a registry. Let's put all of these people over here in conversion therapy. You know, let's take them away from their context. Let's take them away from this broader American context and refuse to let them connect with people and form alliances and become friends and become lovers and become, you know, partners or, you know, next door neighbors or whatever it is. It's all about taking people away from one another. And as far as I'm concerned, one of the big ways that we can really resist that effort, that political effort to isolate and divide is to just, oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm interested in getting together with people and pulling people in and, you know, making those connections and making those connections stronger because an, really, you know, the old phrase about an army of lovers will never lose. I think it's really true. I hadn't really thought about that, that their strategy, that the sort of oppressive fascistic strategy is to keep us all isolated from each other. And terrified of each other. And terrified of each other. The day after the election, I was, you know, I was really just heartsick, as so many of us were. But then I saw a picture of Herr de Mort. I really hate using his name. And I just looked at the picture and I said, you know what, old man, I am not scared of you and I could take your ass in a fight. You are so brave. I mean, I could take his ass in a fight, too. But, like, I don't feel like we're going to get a fight like that. No, but, you know, but just being able to to look at his picture and say that made me feel better because it was just like, you know, if it was him and me in a cage match, I know who's walking out. Wait, but I have a question. It's somewhat tangential. But if you're not afraid of him, why don't you say his name? 
Because I think that he has made, this is just me being kind of woo, that I, he has made such a thing out of his name. Like his name is oh, on everything yeah. that he does that I feel like getting people to say his name repeatedly is part of his strategy. That is super valid. I also refer to him as the hair that would be king. Which <laughs> takes a little longer to say, but... <laughs> I like Cheeto Jesus for sure. It gets yeah. a lot across and, and it's very satisfying to say with the... Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's making us laugh. Again, the role of pleasure and resistance, right? So Right. You know, I last week I put out a call for listeners to tell me like how they were coping post-election and a couple of different listeners told me that they were having more sex than ever. And one of them said specifically queer sex and that they felt like it was really part of their resistance. And I loved hearing that so much. My response was quite the opposite. I just was like completely shut down. I feel like my libido is sort of now coming back. Like, I'm feeling like, oh, I'm still in there. Uh, and that feels good and comforting to me. But I love the idea of just being that fucking life affirming in the face of oppression. Oh, absolutely. The French situation is there in sort of an art movement in the 60s had a wonderful slogan, which was that erotic desire undermines the basis of the established order. <gasps> oh, my God. Wait, say that again. Fantastic. Say it again. Erotic desires undermine the basis of the established order. Oh, say it again. <laughs> Erotic desires undermine the basis of the established order. Oh, I need to like hang that. I need to needlepoint that and hang it on a wall. Yeah, I have always loved that ever since I first stumbled across it because it's so true. I mean, what we want. And what we desire in that very intimate, primal sort of, you know, the things that make all your nerve endings come alive kind of way, that is not about the status quo. That's never about the status quo. I love that. I love that erotic desires undermine the basis of the established order. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, because... The order, especially the one that's coming in now, is about separating us from each other um, mm. and, yeah, and making us be compliant and docile and afraid. And that the life affirmingness of experiencing your genuine erotic desire is a slap in the face to all that shit. Yeah, absolutely. 155 percent. And I just I really feel that that has a, a huge role to play for for all of us is to just remember that you, no one can take that away from you. I mean, that's yours. Thank you for making my first year of Unscrewed such an amazing year. Uh, I know it's been d a dark year in the world, but one of the brightest spots for me has been having this ongoing conversation with you all and with my brilliant guests about how to keep building the sexual culture that we all deserve. I've got lots more in store for you next year, and I hope you'll tune in. And in the meantime, don't forget to keep writing in with your ideas for future shows, topics, guests, with your advice questions for myself and, and other guests to answer on our Spare Parts episodes. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. You can email me at unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can visit my website to listen to all the back episodes of the show. If you missed any 
of these episodes and want to hear more, you can find them at JacquelineFreeman.com along with all of my writing and other work and upcoming appearances and things that I'm up to. You can also, of course, find them in iTunes or on Stitcher or Acast. Don't forget to subscribe and then you'll never miss a key moment again. Also, one last plea for 2016 while you're in iTunes. Give us five stars, give us a review, and make it easier for other folks to join Unscrewed Nation. This show is produced and edited by yours truly. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna, and was produced in collaboration with The Establishment, which also developed the sound cues. Until next year, Unscrewed Nation, and for always, I am wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.